Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. As nearly everybody knows, a handful of us went to Uganda recently. We got back last Friday. The uh, reason we were there is for the, <clears throat> excuse me, and my throat's dry from riding on an airplane forever. The reason we were there is to dedicate the church building and the Sunday school building to separate units. The Sunday school building will double now as the only high school in, I think they say, a 11 kilometer area. The, uh, we have a, uh, I've got a ton of videos and stuff, but just for, your, for you this morning, we're going to play, there was a guy there with a, uh, what do you call those things that go up in there and take pictures, a drone, had a little drone thing that he was playing with and he took some pictures and he sent us the copy of that. So I'm going to play that for you here in a minute so you can see. It'll essentially show you the layout and uh, of the ground and the, and the cutting of the ribbon for the new uh, facilities and you can see some of the people running around there. We'll, we'll have a lot better pictures and more of them later on when we have time to get them assembled in, in a progressive manner. But uh, uh, on Sunday afternoon, after we had had the dedication, under a great old big tent, over 2,000 people from the community showed up. Now, the reason they showed up wasn't just for the beginning of a church. It was because they're going to have a new high school. And that's what they're excited about. And the church is getting credit for it. And the, and the high school will also have the name of the church. And so uh, that the, uh, the community, there is a small school there in the community but it's a muslim school and uh so they're wanting they're they're excited about having a christian institution with a high school and uh, I'll, I'll tell you more about it later but for the time being because i got to jump into the book of revelation here in a minute to straighten out all the stuff matthew said and uh, not not really but uh uh if you'll pay attention to the screen, if they're ready upstairs, it's it's very brief, so watch it carefully, uh, uh, of the video that the guy with the drone sent us of what took place on the day of dedication. That's the facility that you all have provided. And, and now, even better news from an old preacher's point of view is when we offered the invitations the Sunday that I preached on Dedication Day and with the new folks that came forward this past Sunday when Patrick preached, 
we have 84 candidates for baptism set up uh, as a result of the first two services at the church. And it's my opinion based on just what little I know and have listened to that within three years, within probably three years, maybe less, but I'm estimating three years, they'll have somewhere between 1,000 and 1,500 candidates for baptism. And these are people who have never heard the gospel. These are not church transfers like we have so much going on here in the U.S. These are people who are coming to Christ. And uh, there is an excitement that comes with those folks at conversion that you don't see anywhere else. And so I just wanted you to get a little taste of what was going on. But uh, probably 15% uh, of the community showed up on Sunday afternoon to find out about the school and so on and so forth. We already have hired the teachers and the school will begin February 19th of this year. Um, you'll be thrilled to know that the total cost of the startup was $42,000. And we've saved that much money to send to them and it'll be sent tomorrow. The school will, uh, how many students they'll have, we still don't know, but Patrick said yesterday they were enrolling them as fast as they could. You will never see anything like that here in the U.S. And while we were gone, um, you, may have, you may be held over five minutes this morning because I'm taking time for my sermon for this and so. But I thought maybe you just might be interested. The... Uh, Randy Murphy went with us, and he taught a class on AI. There were about a dozen young men there that Patrick and Eddie selected from the churches in the area, all of whom were college graduates, who spent a full day trying to learn how you can use AI to strengthen and expand the kingdom of God. You'll hear a lot of negative stuff about AI, and some of it probably is true. But this kind of idiocy started first time we had an automobile that came out of the pits of hell. First time they had a bicycle that came out of the pits of hell. The, every, everything that has been dramatically different from the past, regardless of its capacity for good, there's a, there's a notable group of people who badmouth it. And it prob it can't, it's just a tool. It is the accumulation of data on, at, at one place at one time that you can access in a matter of seconds. And the amount of data that's available there is probably the majority that's been accumulated in the last 3,000 years. You can take a book, Matthew has had me reading a couple of commentators, uh, commentaries about that thick on the book of Revelation. He's assuming I'd never read it, I think. And anyway, you can go on AI and within 15 minutes have an accurate summary of every chapter in that book done by AI. It's potential for medicine. It's potential, I, I, in my opinion, now this is all opinion, what I'm getting ready to say. I think education will ultimately be tra dr dramatically changed because a kid can get on AI and write a term paper in less than five minutes. And it'll be perfectly written, footnoted, bibliography, everything. I have a friend and he's been to, to Africa with me. He lives in California. He's a wealthy man. He's the head of the 
IT people for a $5 billion company in St. Louis. He's a dedicated Christian man, and they have started a school. <coughs> Excuse me. On the assumption that AI is going to have the kind of influence that he's convinced me it will have. <coughs> and in this particular school, the kids are given an assignment, and then they're required to teach the class with the teacher evaluating what they know and what they don't know. Now, whether this will be the future or not, I don't know. But I'm telling you that AI will be a bigger influence than Wi-Fi, than anything in probably in our lifetime. And its influence will be everywhere. Now, since I'm now such a good prophet, why you all are ahead of everybody else when it comes to understanding that. So let's get to something I do know something about. And that's the second chapter of the book of Revelation. The second, these, there are seven churches that the God has selected to use. And the, the reason there are seven is not an accident. Seven in the Bible is always an indication of completion. It goes clear back to Genesis. What did God do on the seventh day? He ceased activity. He rested. It became known as the Sabbath day or the seventh day. And so he selects these seven churches as representative of the whole body of Christ. And what he's doing here in, with the church at all these seven churches is he's holding them accountable for how well they have represented him. This is really serious stuff. He, he starts off with the best known church. That's the church located in the city of Ephesus. We know more about Ephesus than any other city in the New Testament with the exception of Jerusalem. I walked the ruins of Ephesus, I think, three times. The book of Ephesus is mentioned in the book of Ephesians. It is mentioned and directly addressed in 1st and 2nd Timothy because Paul left Timothy in charge of the church at Ephesus. And the letters that he wrote to him are directly related to that city. The 20th chapter of the book of Acts refers to an instance when the Apostle Paul was headed to Jerusalem, even though the Spirit of God told him, you're heading for big trouble. And he called for the elders of the churches, the church congregations in the city of Ephesus. It was a big city. And they met him at a place called Troas, and he sat and preached and talked to them till after midnight. And then he, they prayed and they all cried and hugged each other because and the reason they cried and hugged each other is he told them, you'll never see me alive again. The Apostle Paul spent more time in the city of Ephesus than he did in any other city in his missionary journeys. It was a, it was a critical city in a critical location. It was extremely wealthy. I mean, beyond what you could probably imagine. The city itself was not the capital of the province, Roman province of Asia Minor, but it was the most prominent city. We'll talk about the capital in a week or so. That was Pergamos. They referred to themselves with a city motto, we're the first and the greatest city in Asia. Now, Asia is Asia Minor. That is a Roman province in modern-day Turkey. I've been there several times into Turkey. There was one place I never got to go. I wanted to go. 
probably don't have time to tell you this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. In the center of Turkey, not too far from Ankara, which is the current capital, they have dug up two Hittite underground cities. The Hittites are mentioned in the Bible prominently as great warriors. Do you remember when David had the illicit activity with a good-looking girl taking a bath on the, on the roof? Her husband was a Hittite who fought for Israel, and there are other, many other mentions of them. This underground city of the Hittites, and there are two of them that have been excavated, had running water, had conveniences that you would not think even existed. And, and the reason they were so hard to conquer, you just couldn't get to them. They, they were, it's, and so, believe it or not, you know today in Gaza, you read about the difficulty between Hamas and Israel. Hamas is having, they're having real difficulty uprooting them because they have done what the Hittites did and built a city underground. Where do you think they got to tell everybody? I said, hey, uh, I like those things. But, but it, it's interesting how history comes back and reflects in modern day time. If you follow along on your sermon outline, we'll look at the city of Ephesus itself before we get to the text. The city was probably the most wicked city because everything was okay. On top of the hill overlooking the city, the hill's still there, but the building that was on it is gone. It was called the Temple of the Goddess Aphrodite, or in some passages, it's referred to as the Temple of Diana. It was covered more than an acre or two, and, and it had columns, and each had, and I forgot the exact number, but these various columns would, somebody, one of the kings from the area would, would select one of them and decorate it with gold and silver, and paintings, graffiti. And in that same building of the temple of the goddess Aphrodite was a bank, one of the wealthiest banks in all the Roman Empire. There was extreme, and, and, and so that's one of the reasons why historians have referred to this ancient city of Ephesus as the Vanity Fair of Asia. It was located on a river, like most big cities were then, because same reason Portsmouth is here, located on the river. That was the superhighway of the past. But it was also located on a regular highway that ran all the way from the Fertile Crescent area of Babylon all the way up into Turkey, all the way across into Rome. It was a major highway. It was a great city. And it, it was as wicked as it was great because everything was okay. At night, coming out of the, off of the hill, the temple of the goddess Diana or Aphrodite in the Greek, Thousands of sacred prostitutes would come into the city, both male and female. It was one of the basis of the extreme wealth of the city itself. Now today, it looks differently, and I'll tell you why in just a little bit. Now then, let's take a minute or two and look at the church that was located in this city. I'm going to read the text. And then we'll dive into it and move right along. If you've got your Bible or your little sinful telephone, you can look at it and follow along. 
to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? Now, the word angel here, as you all know, translated is angelos, and if you translate that Greek word into English, it means messenger. So he's saying to the messenger of the church in Ephesus, right? Now, there's two or three ideas about who this messenger is. I'd always assumed in the past that it was probably the preacher. I'm not so certain anymore. I think it might very well have been a real angel, a guardian angel. Yeah, I believe in guardian angels. And I can make a pretty good case for it, not today, but I can. And the only way you can get out of it is call me a liar. I've been called that before. Now, the Bible specifically makes, I'll just mention this and go on, makes reference to babies having guardian angels. And, and I think some of us do too, if not all of us who walk in the spirit and not just in the flesh. Continue reading. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, in chapter 1, the golden lampstands were the churches. He specifically says, these are the churches. And so he's saying to the church at Ephesus, I know your deeds. You work hard. And you hang in there. Actually, the word is perseverance. But in northern Kentucky, we call it hanging in there. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men. And that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. And John, even in the in first John, t- says it's very important that you test people to see if they're of God. And you found that they were false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Now, I think... That describes a lot of contemporary churches. If you go back and look in our student center, you will see on that whole wall the things that kind of fit into here, the things that we've done in the last 50 years. The number of houses that, of poor people that we restored is in the hundreds. The number of Single parents that we have assisted with rent and food and haircuts for their children and so on are scores. All of these things are good, but they're not essential. And what we're looking at this morning in this text is the difference between what is good and what's essential. You'll see it in just a second. Here's where he continues and says, yet, and always watch out when everybody says yet or but. You're getting ready to have to put on a hard hat and a flag jacket. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Okay, now let's stop there a minute and underline the word love. In the New Testament, I've tried to explain this to you so you you should have it by now. There are two words for love. There are actually three Greek words. One of them, eros, is related to sexual activity. Erotic comes from that. The second one is phileo. And you, you know this one, and you learned it in school, because it's the basis of the city's name, Philadelphia. Philadelphia. It's phileo delphos. The word, Greek word delphos means a lot of people in one place. That's what we call a city. And so, and, and this friendly love, anybody can have. You don't have to be a Christian to be friendly. Lots of Christians sure aren't. And lots of non-Christians really are. This isn't anything miraculous. But the word that's used here is agape. Agape love 
is something that is used in the scripture whenever God's love is mentioned. When he says in John 3, 16, for God so agape the world. Because agape defined means that I'm willing to deny myself in order to benefit you regardless of the cost. All through the New Testament, we're told to learn to love that way. We're to learn to love our wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. We're, learned, we're taught to love our neighbor as ourselves. And when Jesus was cornered by his adversaries and asked, you know, what's the greatest of all the commandments? You know what he said. He said to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. You can't love your neighbor as yourself without the assist of the Holy Spirit. Oh, you can fake it at times. Probably all of us have. But to willingly, wantingly decide to be a blessing to somebody when it costs you something and you want to do it is the motivation of the Holy Spirit who has given you the gift of agape. Agape love for a believer is essential. Absolutely essential. And the church at Ephesus failed in it. Oh, they started off right. All they could talk about was Jesus and what he was doing for them and how the love of God had, had cleansed me from all unrighteousness. And they were excited to share what God had done for them through the work of Jesus on the cross. But somewhere along the line, they got so busy doing good things that they lost touch with the essential things. And recovering lost love is really tough. And what we usually do is we cover it up with things. You know, if you really mess up, you buy your wife the most affordable diamond you can get. Alice Kay's got four. That tell you something about having screwed up in the past? Yeah. The songwriter sometimes says things better than we can say it. He said, money can't buy back your youth when you're old. Or friends when you're lonely. Or a love that's grown cold. The church at Ephesus, known for being really good folks, had grown cold in their affection for God and for each other. And when you read carefully the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul addresses it with tears in his eyes, he said. He said, you know, you're not following your leadership. You're each going in your own way. You've got so much money that you can do good things. But he said, the Lord descended on high, and he gave gifts unto men, and some he gave apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastor teachers for the building up of the body of Christ and the unity of the believers as they reach maturity. They didn't have any unity. Because they didn't love each other. And a church that doesn't love, and I'm not talking about kissy-kissy love. I'm not talking about warm affection. I'm talking about being willing at times to, do, to deny yourself to do something good for people you don't like very well. Because some Christians just aren't very likable. I'm not naming names, but you know it's true. So what he's done here is he's saying, 
Oh, it's easy for us to judge the people in the world, but God is saying, I'm holding you accountable. And in 1 Peter, if you read it carefully in the 4th chapter in the 17th verse, he says, judgment should begin in the family of God. Why? Because He has empowered us to represent Him well by making our fleshly bodies the temple of the Spirit of God. And with that presence comes is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And he's saying, and here's your assignment. Number one assignment. Show your affection for God and prove it to one another. This is essential. He had said it before. If you go to the, the, the passage of Scripture that people like to read at weddings, it really doesn't belong there, but that's what they do. You let the gr- girls and their mothers pick the things that's supposed to happen at weddings, and it becomes a Donnybrook. You'd be surprised at how many people have come to me and said, now, we want you to perform the wedding, but we want to have, the, uh, we, we want to have our own vows. And I said, okay, go somewhere else. I don't charge and I don't need to practice. You hear, you're gonna, I'm going to tell you what you're going to vow to one another because it comes from the Word of God. And, uh, and if you want to whisper something in his ear, do it on your honeymoon. But it ain't going to happen here. I'm not very popular for weddings anymore. But here's what he said. Listen carefully because... It had been said before by the Apostle Paul to the Corinthian church in the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Lots of people read this chapter for weddings, and it's not appropriate there either, but so, so what? He says this, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels... Now, you and I both know that a lot of churches today emphasize speaking in tongues. Now, believe it or not, there's nothing wrong with that if there is an interpretation. I've been watching uh, uh, some television with Pentecostal because they have some pretty good news programs. But some guys that should know better, they'll get their crowd all worked up and then speak out in tongues a little with no interpretation when they know the Bible says you're not to do it without an interpreter. Everybody in the public assembly needs to be able to understand what's being said. I've had people interrupt me and say, you're over our heads. We didn't understand that. And you know what? That's a legitimate question. That's a legitimate So he says this, if you can do that, and that's evaluated above anything among the Pentecostal brethren. But he says this, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am only a sounding gong and a clanging cymbal. Now I take that to mean you're just making a lot of racket. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all the mysteries and all the knowledge, and if I have the faith that can move mountains, but have not love, agape, I am nothing. You see, what he's doing here is he's saying, the work of the Spirit of God in our life is essential. Because all these other good things that the church was doing in Ephesus and that we've done here in the past can be done by non-Christians. And in many instances better because they got more money than we got. So he says to the church here three things. If you've fallen into that category where your love has gone cold. And Jesus actually said in the 24th chapter of Matthew, he said, the time will come when your love will, what in King James, wax cold. The fire will go out. So what do you do when that time comes? In your sermon outline, I said there are three R's that you need to remember. Now, you can remember that because reading, writing, and arithmetic ain't three R's, but that's what we call it. 
But here he tells us exactly. Number one, he says, remember, remember when you were saved? Remember what it was when you were so excited about just knowing Jesus and having his spirit in you and you were telling your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, your neighbor, your friend, boyfriend, your girlfriend, how wonderful it is? Remember that? I remember the first time Alice Kay kissed me. I still get goosebumps. It surprised me. We were just sitting in a car talking. All of a sudden, she planted one on me. You know, don't tell her I said that. She might get embarrassed, and then I'll have some difficulty. But then he says the second thing, second R, repent. That's what he says. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent. Now, repentance means you're sorry for it and you turn in the, and go back in the direction that you ought to be going. It is a conscious effort to get to renew the relationship that you had in the past. And recovering those things are really difficult. And then he said, consciously return to doing what you were doing when you live with that intimacy with the living God. They lost it. We live in a day and an age when churches are evaluated by the social good that they do. And that's not bad. But if that's all they do, the Lord says, you're a failure. And you know what he did with the Ephesian church? They did not repent. He removed that golden candlestick, blew out the lights, and put it away. You see, it, this is called a prophecy. In prophecies of the Old Testament, if you go back in the book of Ezekiel and see how the prophecy was against Tyre and Sidon and other cities, you either repent or else. This is serious stuff. We have a tendency in churches to be influenced by our culture instead of being an influence on our culture. And to that extent, we're failures. The scripture says time and time again, the agape has to be there. In the sixth chapter of Galatians, the Apostle Paul wrote to those congregations located in that province of Galatia. And he said, look, you have to learn to bear each other's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? To love one another. We have a tendency to, to idolize churches that have gotten so big that nobody knows each other. How in the heck can you bear each other's burden if you don't know who has the burden? Been years ago now, I had a little Bible study in, in a bar downtown. Dave Van Fossen was one of our elders here at the time. and <clears throat> I don't know what I was down in the mouth about, but I was feeling sorry for myself about something. Van Fossen was a big guy, probably six, three or four, big old German. He meandered into the office and then shut the door behind him and said, Scott, why don't you, have, why don't you let me have the other end of the log? I said, what the heck are you talking about? He said, because you're carrying it all by yourself. Logs get lighter and more people get a hold of it. And he sat down there with me and I emptied my, I kind of puked in his pocket and emptied what was bothering me. And he prayed with me and things got better. And we should have that capacity and know that that exists in the body of believers so that we're never alone. 
We have to be small enough that we know each other well enough that we can actually care about each other as who we are. The church at Ephesus has gotten to the place where they were so busy doing churchy stuff that they had overlooked the essential of loving each other, bearing each other's burdens, encouraging one another. You see, I believe that when the Lord's presence is there, recognized and listened to, broken things can be fixed. Cold hearts can be warmed. Relationships can be renewed. And life can be worth living even if it's tough. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, I'll be there. And he said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'll be there. But if we're so busy trying to get rich and comfortable, in an atmosphere that's an adversary to the kingdom of God, you're barking up the wrong tree. It ain't going to happen. Contentment comes from knowing, regardless of what happens to me, I have a guarantee of eternal life because of my faith in Jesus and the encouragement I get from the brethren. The reason I push communion is because there are only two ordinances for the, for the New Testament church, baptism, communion. Baptism demonstrates the gospel of a person who couldn't, he doesn't even know it yet. He just knows he's saved, but it's, what is the gospel? The death, burial, and resurrection. What is baptism? It is a demo of the death, the burial, and the resurrection. The reason I despise sprinkling is I don't want to be a, a, a little bit of dirt thrown on me so that my nose sticks up out of the grave. I want to be six foot under, thank you. And then the Lord's Supper does what? It is a visible demonstration of two things. Of the bodily presence of Jesus represented by the cup and the loaf that says, remember me? With the promise of keep on doing this till I come again. So you got what? The, the abiding presence of the living God in your presence and in your body plus the promise to keep on doing until he what? Comes again. There's a great danger in ignoring the presence of the Holy Spirit both in your body and in your church gathering. Here's what he continues to say, and then we'll wind this thing up. Heck, I got eight minutes. All right, he goes on to say this, I, and, and, and we're going to wait until another time for this sixth verse. But he, it reads this, But you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, this comes up again in Pergamos, so we're going to wait and deal with that then. Verse 7 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat for the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. So you see, he is saying, if you repent and turn and recover that which you've lost, you have now been enrolled as an overcomer. And with that promise of overcoming the worldly influence that has crept into your life, 
where you use your money and your influence and your time to create your own little paradise here on earth. That doesn't work anyway. So what does he mean when he says, which is the paradise of God? Now, folks, you know this if you've listened to at least one ear through the years. When Jesus died on the cross, he was on either side surrounded by a couple of thieves. One of them said, Hey, I've got what's coming to me. I'm guilty. I'm sorry. Would you remember me, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus said to him, What? Today? You will be with me in paradisios, paradise. Now, paradise literally means a garden of bliss. It, that's the word that was used of the Garden of Eden. And some say, maybe, I don't know, right or wrong, that the, that the paradise that Jesus and the repentant thief went to was actually Eden replaced in Hades. But I do know this. Paradise didn't stay in Hades. When Jesus was raised from the dead... If you read carefully the 27th chapter of the book of Matthew, you will find that the people that he was in paradise with him came up out of the grave, and some of them were seen meandering around Jerusalem. And then Paul writes in Ephesians 4 that he who ascended was he that descended first of all, and then he took captivity captive. He took those in paradise with him when he went back to heaven. If you want to go to the paradise of God, it just simply means you're going to go where Jesus is. And Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father making intercessions for turkeys like you and me. Paradise then means this. The Apostle Paul said, you know, for me to live is Christ, but die is gain. Gain what? Gain paradise. Overcomers, who are they? They are they who seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, seek on a daily basis an intimacy with the living Christ, and maintain that intimacy, come what may and do whatever they have to do to see that the reality of the consciousness of the presence of the living God is with you on a continuum. That's what it, Scripture means when it says, He that endureth to the end is an overcomer, shall be saved. This prophecy of the seven churches is to be taken seriously because the church at Ephesus didn't. They liked what they were doing. They liked the wealthy, luxurious living that they were in. And they weren't willing to give it up. The result was God did what He said He would do. He took their lampstands, blew out the fire, and put it away. And all that's left there, as you walk down the main street of the restored ruins of Ephesus, is about a 30-hole toilet. And if you've walked down there, you know what I'm talking about, because they make a big deal out of a 30-hole toilet, public toilet. That's all that's left. The judgment of God is not pleasant unless you're an overcomer. Remember? Repent and return. You know, churches quit growing when they quit doing what they were growing, when they were growing. 
Christians grow cold when we quit doing what we were doing when we were intimacy with Christ. Remember. Remember. Lord, I ask your blessing upon this gathering of people. Help us to take seriously what the Ephesian church did not. Oh, they maybe have been a few overcomers. I don't know. doesn't say. But it does say that if we want to stay and endure, we better take seriously what you tell us in your word. As we leave this building, Father, we pray that the intimacy of your divine presence will go with us to our homes, to our bedrooms, to our kitchens, to our living rooms, to the job where we work and the places where we play. Help us, O oh God, to represent you really, really well wherever we find ourselves. And be comforted by the fact that for us to die is gain. Gaining even access to the paradise of God. Thank you, Lord, for that promise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You're free to go. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.